This week on the 624, we go wild and crazy, and we only cover one topic, and that's Old Earth objections to six literal days of creation. Let's get started. Welcome to the 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries, taking a stand on God's Word and trusting it from the very first verse. Join us as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. Welcome to the 624. My name is Dave Napier, and I am the host of the podcast, the founder of Central Texas Creation Ministries and the Central Texas Creation Conference. I am glad that you're here with me on the 624, where even the name tells you that I believe that God created in six literal 24-hour days. So glad that you're here. I hope you're ready for this week. I hope you had a great weekend. I know I did. Uh, last week was my birthday. And so I got to celebrate with my family this Saturday, or this last Saturday. Uh, now, you may not know what family is, but I'm willing to bet that you have family. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, let's see here. It was several years ago we talked about it. I'm horrible with, with dates. So it's just that we actually talked about it that I, only, that I know this. It was 2015 that I, I uh, led a home group for my church. And over the years, we have just continued to stay in touch. We use GroupMe. We talk, we talk every day. We're praying for one another, all kinds of stuff. We have a lot of fun. And so there's those people that uh, they're your friends, but they're more than your friends. Like you're doing life together. Uh, they're not necessarily your family. I mean, they're not your blood relatives, but they're so much more than a friend. And so we call them our family. So I'm pretty sure you guys have family too. I hope that you enjoy uh, spending time with your family this week as well. So the, the bad part is, is that this podcast is going to go a little bit longer. So I've actually wiped out all the other segments. And today we're going to go straight into our main topic. All right. Well, we are here talking about the literal six days of creation, the biblical reasons for six days of creation uh, we talked last week about that, giving the positive argument for the six days of creation. And then this week, we're going to be focusing on the old earth objections for the six literal days. Now, next week, we'll go ahead and we're going to talk about something that is even more important. And that is the theological destruction of compromising on Genesis. When you try and put millions of years into the Bible you wind up destroying your theology. And I want to make sure you hear about that one next week. So for this week, we're going to be talking about old earth objections. And this was kind of inspired by Hugh Ross. So Hugh Ross is one of the biggest proponents of old earth. He is a Christian, uh, but he believes in millions of years. Now, he was on a, uh, a talk show on TBN, great platform, uh, he was on talk show on TBN with Ken Ham, uh, Sean McDowell, um, Ray Comfort, Eric Hovind, and another guy from Brown University. He was a professor, and I haven't, I didn't know who he was. I haven't had the desire to look him up. He and I don't mean to be mean by this. I'm just going to tell you why I haven't looked him up. He really didn't contribute anything to the conversation. Every time. He would never jump in, and anytime they would ask him a question, his answer was, well, gosh, it could go either way, 
but I kind of think it might be long periods of time. That's that's about all you would ever say in just different ways about different subjects. So I haven't looked him up, but he was there. All great men, I'm sure. Uh, first things first, not questioning anybody's salvation. Right off the bat, before we start this, I want to make sure you understand I am not questioning anybody's salvation. Creation is not a salvation issue. It is an authority issue. Same thing uh, with Ken Ham, same thing with Creation Ministries International, AIG, ICR, whatever whatever ministry you want to talk about. None of them say that this is a salvation issue. It is an authority issue. So let me tell you just a little bit about why I'm doing this. I'm basically going in, because Hugh Ross is such a huge proponent for Old Earth, I am using the arguments that he uses to talk about this. And part of this is going to sound like I'm kind of uh, not bashing Hugh Ross, but uh, there is a history there with Hugh Ross and Ken Ham. Now, when you wa- if you watch this video, I'll put the link in the description if you watch this video, Ken Ham comes off as a little abrupt, a little, you know, he jumps in, cuts him off, and and uh, he dominates the conversation. One thing that you need to know is that there is a history between him and Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross has continued to use bad arguments for Old Earth. And when he's called on it, hey, this doesn't mean what you said it means, Rather than coming forward and say, hey, you know what? I thought that's what it meant, but it's not. But let me point you to these other three arguments that are good arguments. Instead of doing that, he's doubled down and said, no, you guys are wrong. uh, And just went went off the deep end in a sense. Uh, The other thing is that I know at one point you can go to creation.com and read about this. Uh, There's a point where he started creating straw men arguments. In other words, saying that creationists believe some things that they didn't. He was then told by creationists, prominent creationists like Ken Ham, that, hey, this is not what we believe. And he went on and has cont- and went on and continued to put those arguments in a book. So there's a history between Ken Ham and Hugh Ross. So that's what you're watching when you see these things. It's evidenced by the fact when they talk about Hosea 6, Ken Ham goes, you know this, we've talked about this over and over again, and you won't accept it. And so there is a huge history there. So number one, not doubting anybody's salvation. Number two, want to make sure you understand there is a huge history between Ken Ham and Hugh Ross. And number three, I don't know what number three is. Number three is (laughs) that there's a couple of arguments for Old Earth that I'm going to talk about. And then there's a couple of reasons that Hugh Ross gives that at 17, he decided that it was millions of years and not six literal days. We'll talk about all those things. This one's probably going to run a little bit long, but I want to make sure that you understand these things. So first things first, the first thing that you always hear when we talk about six literal days of creation is that Yom has more than one meaning. The word Yom is the Hebrew word for day, Yom, uh, it can have more than one meaning. Everybody knows this. It's fine. Hugh Ross brings this up and says, well, can, you know, Yom can have up to four meanings. And what he doesn't finish that sentence with is based on the context around it. And that's the same thing for a whole lot of words in English language. We actually have words, many, many words 
that can have multiple meanings, but based off the context, we understand what it means. For instance, if I was to say, in my grandfather's day, it took two days to get to Austin, but nowadays it only takes a few hours. Were you confused at all by using the word day so many times? Did you did you think that maybe I meant a literal day when I meant a period of time or anything like that? No, because you understand based on the context of the sentence what each instance of day was. So when we talk about day, the word the word yom having more than one meaning, one of the key things to think about is the number that's in front of yom. So the first day, the second yom, the third yom, the fourth day, right? So the question is this, why would he put a number in front of it if it was not a measurable amount of time? If you were to say, well, it's two days, but day, it means a uh, anonymous, a long period of time, which is basically what Old Earth is saying. Well, it's just a long period of time of some sort. If that's the case, how do you distinguish between one long period of time and two long anonymous periods of time? They are indistinguishable. It doesn't matter what number you put in front of it, unless it is a measured amount of time, the number is useless. So why would God, Moses, however you want to put it, why would he put a number in front of the word yom unless he knew what he was talking about and he knew that the reader would know that it was a measured 24-hour period. It was a literal day. It just wouldn't make sense any other way. It does not make sense. Now, one of the things that Hugh Ross brings up is Hosea 6. Now, when I look at these things, when I listen to these things, I am very conscious. Conscious? I don't think I said that word right. I'm very aware. <laughs> I'll just use that word. I'm very aware of the fact that if they bring something up that I don't know the answer to, I better look it up. If they bring something up that I've never heard of, I better look it up because I want to make sure I know the answer before I get out here and start talking to other people about it. Now, Hugh Ross brings up Hosea 6, and this is the one where Ken Ham says, well, we've talked about this and you know, uh, but you're not going to agree with me. So I'm thinking, wow, this is something I've never heard before. I better go check this out and make sure that this still lines up with what I believe. I went to Hosea 6, and what I found, trying to think how to say this, I don't want to badmouth you, Ross, but what I found over throughout this video is every answer that Hugh gives sounds like it is just a hammer being dropped. He's this quiet, humble guy, sounds very smart, you know, but I honestly believe that he's manipulating people on purpose. Uh... And I, I don't mean maliciously, but I do believe he knows he's manipulating people with through his language. When he says Hosea 6, he says it like this is the, uh, the end-all, be-all argument of the word yom. But when you go to Hosea 6, it is a prophecy to where it says, in that day, talking about this future time, this future event, this does not present any problem with the whole yom has more than one meaning. You still understand the meaning through the context. Uh, we can go throughout the Bible, even in Genesis, uh, they use the word day in a meaning of like a time period, not an actual day, but a time period. 
And so I don't know why he brought this up, this Hosea 6 up. He even talks about, you know, as a young man, uh, he found that uh, Proverbs 8 and Job 38 and 39 and Psalm 104 were all parallel passages to the creation week. Now, Ken Ham kind of stops and says, none of those are parallel passages. None of them are an account of creation. And he says, well, but they're parallel passages that talk about creation. In a sense, they do. I mean, Proverbs 8, Psalms 104, I think Psalms 104 discusses the flood, personally. Because otherwise, how would you say uh, he set the boundaries that the water would never cross again? If you say that's the creation week, when you get to the flood, oops, now God's a liar. So when it says that he sets the boundaries for the sea so that they would never cover the land again, that has to be the flood. So 104, not so much. Um, but Proverbs 8, Job 38 and 39 talk about animals that were created by God. And he says like uh, Job in general, he's talking about, hey, who are you, Job? I'm the one who created everything. Who do you think you are? You know, sit down. I think it says in there, you know, you're going to sit there and you're going to answer, you know. And so these are not parallel passages. They may talk about animals that God created. They may talk about pieces of creation week, maybe, but they are not parallel passages. Again, every time he gives an answer, it's just a little bit off to where you just kind of go, um, not so much. So, Yom has more than one meaning, absolutely no substance to this argument. There's nothing wrong at all. We understand it as six literal days. Otherwise, why would God have put a number in front of the word day? It would have to be a defined amount of time in order for two to make sense. Otherwise, God is just being illogical. All right? So the second thing that they bring up is Exodus uh, 20. So Ken Ham brings up Exodus 20 where it says, hey, as I created in six days and rest on the seventh, you will work for six days. You'll do your work for six days and then rest on the seventh. So now what was brought up, uh, Hugh Ross brings up Exodus 23 and uh, Leviticus 25. He says, well, you can't use that as a formula because God talks about in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 25 how you will work the fields for six years and then rest on the seventh. So you can't use that as a formula to say that because he says the word day here and the word day there, that it must be days. Well, there's a couple of problems with this. I'm going to read these to you. You can open up your Bible. You can pop open your app, whatever you want to do. I always encourage you to check everything I say because I don't want to say anything that you can't go check and make sure that I'm right. And if you find out that I'm wrong, then I want you to tell me because I don't ever want to say it again. Okay? So, you can pop open your Bible. It's Leviticus 25, 1 through 4. We're going to go there first. Leviticus 25, 1 through 4. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, or solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Now, here's a single problem. There's a problem with this. God does not make a direct connection between the days of creation and the six years that they're working the fields. In Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, 
he makes a direct connection and uses the same word, yom. He says, in six yams I created, and in six yams you will do all your work. See, God did all his work in six days. We're to do all our work in six days, and we both, both he rested on the seventh, and we are to rest on the seventh day. But he makes a direct connection between the two, and he uses the word yom in both instances. But now, if we go to Exodus 20, 23, here's, here's an interesting one. This is just three chapters after the Ten Commandments, and he's talking about the same thing. The six years you're going to sow your land. If you go to Exodus 23, it's verses 10 through 12. It says this, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkeys may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. Okay. Now, here's something even more interesting, because, again, he uses the same language, six years, you shall sow your land. But then he goes back and says, in six days, you shall do your work, and on the seventh day, you shall rest. So he hearkens back to that ten command, the Ten Commandments there, talking about how we will do our work in six days. Now, Hugh Ross has a really good point if God uses the same word for years and days. If in this passage, the word year and the word day are the same word, it blows everything out of the water as far as six literal days of creation. But as I'm sure you've already guessed, it's different words. So both in Leviticus 25 and Exodus 23, God uses the word shana for years. He says six shana you shall sow your land. But then in verse 12, when he says six days you shall do your work, he uses six yams. So it's two different distinct words that he uses. God's very specific. He's not trying to be vague. He's being very specific, and he's telling us exactly what he means. So again, another argument that has no substance at all. Now I want to talk about, just briefly, the two things that he said, or Hugh Ross said, really changed his mind when he was 17 that it was millions of years and not six literal days. So the first thing Hugh Ross says is that the seventh day never ended. He told Eric Hoban this. He said, look, when you're in the, at the end of chapter one, you're still in the seventh day. You're in the middle of the seventh day. And then you get to chapter two and you wind up talking about Adam and Eve being created. Now, this is completely bogus, okay? We're going to read Genesis chapter 2 and find out whether or not the seventh day never ended. His theory on this is because during the first six days, you have the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning were the second day, so forth. So you have that for the six days. And then he says, ah, but the seventh day never ended because it doesn't have that saying at the end. This is completely ridiculous. At the end of the sixth day, he had finished all his work. And so the seventh day, he was simply resting. If we go to Genesis chapter 2, again, you can turn to your Bible there. Uh, you can open up an app. Always check everything I say, everything I read. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. 
And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. It goes on, this is the history of the heavens of the earth, excuse me, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, he- the earth and the heavens. So that's the first few verses of chapter 2. Now, first of all, if you look at the end of chapter 1, it ends with, and God saw, saw all that he had made and said it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. That's the end of chapter 1. There is no, the seventh day started. It ends on the sixth day the second chapter starts the seventh day. First of all, that. Second of all, the chapters and verses were put in a lot later. So you can't use these separations or these segmentations of the of the verses to make some point about the sixth and seventh day. Okay? So we need to figure out, we need to find out if the seventh day never ended. And it says right there, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. So on the seventh day, he wasn't doing anything. The whole point of the six days was that he was telling you exactly what he did for each day. On the seventh day, he rested. There was no more work to be done. It says right there, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. So the seventh day was never about doing anything. There wasn't a, a chronological order. There wasn't any any kind of real connection between the six, first six days and the seventh day. It was different. It was separate because he created for the first six days and then he rested on the seventh. It even talks about it in the past tense. It says, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. So past tense, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. So this whole seventh day never ended is ridiculous. Now, what he talks about later on is that there are a couple places in the Bible where it says that we are still in the Sabbath rest. We're supposed to enter into the Sabbath rest. A little bit different. He says, uh, Hugh Ross, again, his answers are just a little bit off every time. You see, all Christians are supposed to rest in Christ. We are supposed to be in the Sabbath rest. If you just blanket say, oh, oh, the seventh day never ended. We're all still in the Sabbath rest. That means unbelievers are in the Sabbath rest also. But God tells us we are supposed to enter into the Sabbath rest. Very big problem with your theology if you try and stuff those millions of years into the Bible, if you try and make that seventh day never end based off those verses. So again, another argument with no substance. And so we move on now to the sixth day had to take more than 24 hours. As we get into this uh, sixth day had to have taken more than 24 hours, I want to make sure you understand this probably comes closest to him, to Hugh Ross, actually manipulating the audience. And uh, again, I don't want to beat him up. I don't think that he's maliciously doing anything. I think probably at best... He hasn't studied these arguments in a while, and so it's kind of morphed in his mind. And uh, as he's his desire to get people to believe what he's saying, he's using words that aren't quite right. Uh, at worst, I think he's just 
being a little bit manipulative in his wording, or you might say um, his word choices are uh, benefiting his argument, I guess you could say. But we're going to go through, we're going to hear what he says, what you, Ross, says the Bible tells us about the sixth day. And then we're going to go back and read the Bible and see what the Bible actually says about the sixth day. So I won't read you. I've actually done a transcript. I paid to get a transcript of the of the video so I could go back and make sure that I wasn't misquoting him because some of this stuff is like really obviously not what the Bible says. But he goes through, and the first thing he says is that God planted a garden, and then Adam had to watch the trees grow. And so the concept is, he's saying, well, God had to go plant plant a garden, and then and then the trees had to grow. He and Adam had to kick around, do some small talk, that sort of thing. Uh, he didn't say the small talk part, but you know, this is the concept he's giving you that it would have taken a while. And then God puts Adam into the garden, and Adam has to work the plants. He has to work the garden. For some weird reason, he thinks that there's some amount of time that Adam had to work the garden. I don't know why. And then he goes on to say that Adam had to name the animals and he had to figure out how God designed them and how each one of them was to serve him and to please him. All right. I'm trying to keep my mouth shut. I'm trying to just give you these, what he says, and then we'll go back and read the Bible. And then uh, finally, he says that Adam was lonely. He He's called out, hey, it doesn't say he's lonely. He goes, oh yeah, he's lonely. It says he's lonely because there is uh, all the, he, he sat here and interacted with these animals long enough that he realizes there's nobody there for him. And so he's lonely. And that takes more than a few minutes to become lonely, he says. And then he says that God does surgery on Adam. And then when he sees Eve, he says hapa'am, which is at long last. This is what he says the word means. The word is translated 20 times in the Old Testament as at long last. Okay, this is what he says. These are the things that he says. Now we're going to go back and read the Bible, and we're going to see how accurate he was. So if we start out in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the next few verses are the four rivers. I'm going to skip that part because they really have no bearing on what we're talking about. If we go to verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, or excuse me, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? I'm going to stop right there, and let's just talk about this for just, just a second. Hugh Ross says that God had to plant the garden, and then he and Adam had to sit around and watch the trees and, the, and everything grow. Okay? The problem here is that's not exactly what the verse says. It says that the God planted the garden, that God planted the garden, and then he put Adam in the garden to tend it. Now, here's my question. We talk about planting a garden or planting a flower bed all the time, but it doesn't mean that we go out and buy seed and put it in the ground, cover it up, water it, and wait months for it to grow. We go to Home Depot or we go to a nursery and we buy mature plants and we go plant them in the bed 
we're in the garden and we say, hey, I planted a garden, I planted a flower bed. Okay, this is not odd language to us. Why in the world would the creator of the entire universe, the creator of our souls, the lover of our souls, ex nihilo, in other words, create from nothing, seeds? Why in the world would he create seeds when he could, like Adam, he didn't create Adam as a little baby or as a sperm and an egg. He created Adam as a man. Why in the world would the creator of the universe create seeds and then go, okay, here we go. We're going to have to plant these. Now let's cover them up and put water on them. I don't think that this is a good, a good concept. I think this is just Hugh Ross trying to manipulate the audience to think that it has to take more than 24 hours for the sixth day. Now it goes on to say this. Uh, let's see here. It says he put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, what Hugh Ross says is that Adam had to work the garden. He had to work the agriculture, had to do this to help the garden grow. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he put him in there with the intention that he would tend it. It doesn't say that there's any period of time that he actually tends it. It just says he put him in there so that he could tend the garden. So again, uh, possibly it's just kind of mixing up in his head. I don't know. If we continue on in verse 18, it says this, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now let's stop right there and go back. Remember, Hugh Ross told us that Adam got lonely, that he'd been interacting with these animals and he got lonely. Is that what the Bible says? No, it's not. See, it says, it says in the Bible in verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. This is not a reaction. This is not necessarily, I'll say, a reaction to what is happening in the Garden of Eden. This is a truth that God gives us in his word. This could have been said long before he created the heavens and the earth, long before he created the sun and the moon, uh, all this kind of stuff. This truth would have held true no matter when he said this. It is a statement of truth, not a statement of reaction to what is happening in the Garden of Eden. It never says that Adam got lonely. The reason Hugh Ross wants you to think that it says Adam got lonely is because it it is indicative of time passing so that he could get lonely. If you continue on, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. In the Bible, does it say anything about how Adam had to look at how they were how God designed them, how they would help him, and how they would please him? Absolutely not. That is a total fabrication, a total spin off of what the Bible actually says. Okay? Again, I'm not accusing him of trying to maliciously lie to anyone. I think he gets on a roll, and in his head it gets mixed up, and he's trying to be eloquent and trying to convince you that this has to take longer than 24 hours, and he starts to add to the Bible. Now, one of the questions you may be asking is, how in the world would Adam be able to name all these animals? 
two things we have to keep in mind. Number one, it doesn't say that Adam named all the animals. It says he named the cattle, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. He didn't name anything in the ocean. He didn't name reptiles, insects, amphibians, anything like this. Only the beasts of the field, the cattle, the birds of the air. That's going to whittle things down amazingly. All right. The second thing, or, or with that, make sure you understand, he's not naming species. When we think of animals, we normally think of species. He's naming kinds. It would be more akin to when we talk about species, genus, or family, this big overarching group of animals. He would be naming kinds. And so this would whittle it down. I mean, honestly, he probably only named somewhere around probably a couple thousand uh, kinds. Now, the second question is, would how long would it take him to name 2,000 kinds? Well, understand, this is God creating the first perfectly created human man, okay? His mind would have worked amazingly. He would have been super intelligent. Uh, he has all the best genes, right? And so the second thing is, understand that it's not like he, he had to go there and think about, well, in the original Latin, we could use this. No, there is no other language. Whatever he thought of, the Bible says whatever Adam thought of, that was the name of the animal. Think about it. If he did, say, five, five animals a minute, that's 300 animals in an hour. That means it would have taken him about six hours to name 2,000 kinds of animals. Six hours. Let's say he took lunch and took a couple 30-minute breaks. That's eight hours. Let's, let's roll it back. If we start out at 8 a.m. in the morning, God plants the garden with mature plants. Why would we think it would take anything less than instantaneous for God to plant the garden? Let's say it took an hour for God to plant the garden. I mean, let's just go wild and crazy. Let's say it took an hour for God to somehow plant this garden and put Adam in it. We're now at 9 a.m. And then he brings the animals in front of him. That's six hours plus an hour lunch and, and, and breaks. I know this sounds ridiculous. I'm not saying this is how it happened. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is how it happened. I'm just saying that as you think through this, this is God, the creator of the universe, and you're trying to put time limits on him. Give me a break, okay? Even if we say it took six hours plus lunch and, and a couple 30-minute breaks, that's an eight-hour day. You started at 9 a.m. What You're now at, what, 4, 5 p.m. in the evening? And, and he's named all the animals. They planted the garden, put Adam in it. All the animals are named. Now he, God says, okay, go to sleep for a little while. And he does surgery on Adam, right? He does the surgery on Adam. He wakes up. Even if you go crazy and say, look, let's say it takes God an hour to do the surgery and it takes Adam an hour to recover. This seems silly when you really think about the fact that this is the creator of the universe. But let's just say that's 5, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. now. At 7 p.m., God brings Eve to Adam. We haven't even hit 12 hours yet. We've done everything, and we haven't even hit 12 hours yet. Forget a 24-hour period. We haven't hit 12 hours. And you get to Adam coming before Eve. Oops, excuse me. Eve coming before Adam. And what does he say? It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, 
he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they became, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, here, remember, Hugh Ross said we have that word that's translated 20 times in the Old Testament as at long last. But right here in this verse, this is the New King James Version, it is not translated at long last. It is translated as now. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Do you realize he says, ah, oh, it's, it's in 20 other places and it's translated at long last. In the New King James Version, that word is never translated at long last. I checked the New King James. I checked the King James Version. I checked the NIV. I checked the NASB. None of these versions ever translate this word as at long last. Now, there are a few translations that translate this word as at last. Not at long last, but at last. ESV, NLT, the complete Jewish Bible. I even found went online to try and find something. I found this random Learn Hebrew website. It's a WordPress site, not affiliated with, affiliated with anything major, but it actually has it translated as at last. So first of all, nobody has it translated at long last. Now, why does he add the long? Very obviously, again, he's trying to continue to make you think it has to do with passage of time. At long last, it's that passage of time. Two things about that. At last, number one, that word is used anytime someone is passionate about something, someone who is uh, adamant about something. So I think it has more to do with that than about some kind of at long last. However, the second thing is at last, not long last, remember, at last is an expression of perception, not an expression of measurement. So at last is an expression of perception. Have you ever done this? Pretty sure most of us have. We say, hey, did I ever show you that photo of so-and-so? And we go, no, no, you, you, didn't, you didn't show that to me. Okay, hold on. And you start swiping back. Swipe, 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 swipe. Hold on just a second. I, I know it's here somewhere. Swipe, 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 swipe. <laughs> At this point, people are making fun of you, right? Uh, and you're like, hold on. No, no, I think I got, I swear it's right here somewhere. Hold on. Swipe, 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 swipe. People are now already on to another subject, Okay. They're bored with you looking for the picture. They're on to another subject. And then you find the picture and you're like, ah, oh, finally, here we go. This is the picture I was telling you about. It may have only taken three minutes, but we'll say something like, finally. Okay, most people don't say things like, at long last or at last. We say something like, finally, like, ah, oh, finally. But again, it's an expression of perception, not an expression of actual measurement. Could have only taken three minutes for you to find that picture, but it seemed like an hour trying to find it while everybody else has moved on to another subject, and you're just trying to find the picture. So it's an expression of perception, not an expression of measurement. So again, this argument of it has to take 24 hours is an argument with no substance. It doesn't hold water. Just like all the other arguments that we've talked about today, none of them hold water. They are, have no substance. The Bible tells us that God created in six literal days, there is not an old earth objection that has any substance that would tell us differently, okay? And the worst part is, 
Next week, we're going to be talking about the theological disaster that happens when you're trying to compromise in Genesis. It is a very bad thing, and you do not want to miss that. You're going to want to listen to next week's podcast. Now, before I sign off, I want to let you guys know about a resource you can get that will help you with this topic. If you're interested in the topic, you have family members or coworkers or friends that are old earth people, then you can get this resource by Jonathan Sarfati. No, it's Sarfati. Jonathan Sarfati with Creation Ministries International. And he is a, I believe his degree is in physical chemistry. However, he has the ability to break down these arguments and make them extremely clear. It's a wonderful book. It's called Refuting Compromise. And it is all about refuting Hugh Ross's arguments. Because, of course, Hugh Ross doesn't just make arguments about the Bible verses. He makes arguments about the science, about astronomy, because, of course, he's an astrophysicist. Uh, He makes arguments about how the church fathers were old earthers and this sort of thing. And so he goes through and breaks down all these arguments and does an amazing job. Now, he doesn't just do it with Hugh Ross. He actually wrote two other books that I would highly suggest to you, Refuting Evolution 1 and Refuting Evolution 2. All three of these books are amazing resources by him that you want to pick up. You can go to creation.com, go to their store, and get those resources in either a physical copy or you can get them in the ebook version as well. So check out that resource if you're interested in the topic. One more thing before I sign off, I wanted to let you know that I will be speaking at Calvary Austin in Pflugerville on April 7th, both at the 9.30 and 11.30 service. That's Sunday, April the 7th. I'll be speaking on astronomy, turning back the clock. Um, Or it just doesn't take millions of years. I haven't decided yet, but be sure and check that out. You can go to calvaryaustin.com and find out where that is and where you can show up, and uh, you can enjoy that talk as well. Hope you guys had a great time with the podcast today. Hope that you will join us for the next one. Be sure you subscribe so that you get notified the next time we drop a podcast, which will be next week. But until then, I pray that God blesses you with wisdom to know Him and courage to share Him. Thank you for listening to The 624 the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries. Join us again next time as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. To learn more, visit our website at www.centraltexascreation.com.